we're back. Hi, we're back. We have a very special uh, guest with us today. <laughs> um, poet Ariana Rhines, author of a new book called A Sand Book. Yeah, which we will be talking about. Hello, welcome, Ariana. Thank you. How's it going? <laughs> uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, we were. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for coming. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks for having we me. We were like, trying to get you on the show for a while. Forever. Now. We've been like circling each other for since maybe like last September or something. I don't remember how far these like emails stretch. It's back. at least a year, I yeah, think. Yeah, which is crazy. So now you're here. Cool. We're going to ask you what you think about Bernie Sanders <laughs> and Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> um, I'm being eaten by like a mysterious. Are you getting bit by bugs? Yeah. That's yeah, right. I have like a mosquito problem. Where? Here or just in like life in, in general? My, in my body. <laughs> yeah. In they my like body. gravitate toward you. Uh, what yeah. blood type are you? I don't know my blood type. Mm. Do you know your blood type, Dasha? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, negative. Okay. Because I donate blood. Okay. Is that the rare type? It's like a universal donor. So oh, okay, cool. Oh, you're the most sought after. Yeah. So they're call, they call me all the time. And I say, <laughs> I just don't have it in me right now. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I love donating blood. I want that to become my new hobby. It's fun. You feel fucked up afterwards. You feel, you feel loopy and also virtuous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I, I always feel very virile when I see my blood. Me like, too. Right? And you're like, I made that. Like, mm-hmm. that, that yeah, came comes, out yeah. of me. And it's it burns, exciting. Cal- burns calories. It does. <laughs> it's like breastfeeding. It does. <laughs> Every time I'm to... like menstruating, I want to like smear the blood under my eyes like they do in football and be, be like, I am woman. <laughs> well, do you? Have you ever? You just um, want to every month and don't. I've never done it, but <laughs> have you ever smeared your menstrual blood on anything? Yeah, all the time. On your walls and stuff. Uh, on not like deliberately, but my room is like stained with trace yeah. amounts of menstrual blood. It gets on sure. Yeah, it it's really called being gets, a woman. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever eaten it? Yeah, I, I've tried it. I I've eat also it all the time. Food. I yeah. eat it all the time now. It's just like because like when What's you're the problem? if you put in well, I I have this um, this project that I that I have long wanted to do called the Center for Menstrual Consciousness. Okay, mm. wonderful. And it would be like a not-for-profit organization um, that would like research menstrual consciousness mm-hmm. and um, and there would be like conferences and scientists yeah. but also like artists mm-hmm. and I thought like it would be great to have a logo competition for the cmc.org mm-hmm. like it's <laughs> just <laughs> like just imagining CMC, yeah yeah the cmc so I, I could talk about blood forever. Well, forever. there's a lot of menstrual imagery in a sandbook. Mm-hmm. Ooh, nice segue. Yeah, Ooh. there is. <laughs> should we go into the book or should sure. we briefly grill should you? we talk about menstruating some more? Yeah, some more, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go into the book. You want to yeah. go into the book? Okay. <laughs> um, Dasha? Yeah. Book? Uh, well, I've been a kind of a fan of yours for a while, actually. Me too, yeah. I <laughs> um, don't want to put you on the spot. Not to freak you yeah. out. Kind of a fan that sounds sort of... Well, I just, I'm just trying not to be like, you know... An annoying too fan girl, yeah. Or <laughs> I'm playing that it cool. it's annoying, but we just all want to be praised and loved. Yeah, it's true. No, we love your work on this show, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I, um, 
I also reread, how do you say this one? Coeur d'Alene. Coeur d'Alene. Mm-hmm. And this one really resonated with me because it's about reading your boyfriend's emails. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I need to read that That one. really landed. You can help. I'm in that emotional copy. state right now. Oh, no. Yeah. Which I will, I will not be <laughs> talking about. But, um, yeah. So. But a sand book is a much, is a like, seems like a very ambitious endeavor in that, you know, it seems like a very realized vision of something yeah Yeah. and it's beautifully compiled whoever did the design did you have like a hand in that it was a really great uh conversation okay yeah Mm -hmm. um the the cover like my like our design meeting about the cover I was like waving around a Safeway bag Uh and like this like blingy jewelry and a dress that I had dyed with turmeric that was bright yellow menstrual blood yeah and my my menstrual blood Um, and the font which has showed up on a lot of books this season so I can't I felt is like, that true? I felt very special. Like it's it's on the cu- it's the font that's used this one. on um, mm-hmm. self portrait in a convex mirror, the Ashbury book, mm-hmm. like the original. So I I thought that I was like paying this like secret homage, right. but it's like on like five books, so it wasn't very special of me. It's on trend, but there's yeah, a zeitgeist. It's just in the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> but no, yeah, the design stuff was fun. Yeah. I hope and I like the the kind of uh, back end of the book is this uh, I wouldn't I don't know if you would even call it a, a poem it's the ma- mosaic and it that's all black it's like white text set off on black background did you was that your idea yeah cool why <laughs> did you what led you to that <laughs> design decision um actually it comes So the first time I presented that material in public was at a conference in Canada, Mm -hmm. in Montreal, called Occult Poetics. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, I didn't talk about that material for years, except with like certain people in my life. And then there was this conference called Occult Poetics and my friend C.A. Conrad was there and Conrad is very like Capricorn and they like, they are like all about like getting their fucking shit done. (laughs) And like, I'm like, I'm really not like that. Um, I have to be like yelled at Mm -hmm. um, either by like, somebody inside me or like preferably like somebody on the authority really large person an authority (laughs) figure of some kind and I got there and I like still hadn't like put it into like I hadn't like I had like typed it up in like Mm -hmm. a word document but Mm -hmm. I hadn't like put it into like whatever and Conrad was like make a powerpoint Mm -hmm. and so I like made a powerpoint and presented it as such yeah and with a black background um it's a great yeah disseminate information yeah uh and and i just figured if it goes badly it's canada and like (laughs) nobody (laughs) Nobody gives a shit what happens in canada (laughs) yeah what happens in canada stays in canada (laughs) what happens the occult once they read the indigenous land declaration everybody stops listening anyway so (laughs) You know that has caught on in the United States. No, no way. It has. We like are. in the Southwest. It, I've, um, I've, I've, I've. Well, it's all, all there. I've seen land acknowledgement happening a lot. 
actually. Damn. We, we yeah. must not be going to the right. Yeah, we're not. We're not, we're not I don't know where you guys are hanging yeah. out. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were sh- shocked when we, when I was at least in Toronto when people were doing it. I was like, oh, yeah, wow, it was like stunning. Here. Yeah. There's like a lot of other things we should acknowledge maybe then too. <laughs> yeah. After they've like desecrated all the land by like throwing up Starbucks on literally every corner in yeah. Toronto. Um, yeah. So when this book came out, how long ago? About uh, several late months. June? Okay. Summer. Yeah. Summer. summer book. In the middle of like, uh, like a whatever. It was like a crazy summer. I feel like a lot of people died and lost limbs and things went, were crazy for people that you knew. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, okay. I haven't known anyone who's died. No, no dismemberment or death. No, no. No, I mean, I'm sure there's been some. Just wait. Yeah. Hardly any death at all. Actually. Yeah. So like (laughs) the material in the book, it, it spans from like year wise. Um, so 2012 okay. mm-hmm. to late 2018 is when you start, you started sort of, did you plan it sort of cohesive as cohesively as it seems <laughs> um, or did you sort of compile themes and ideas that you had already been? So it's kind of weird. Like every book that I've written has started with the title mm-hmm. and there's a poem in this book that sort of, it's called To the Reader, and that sort of like describes the beginning, well, what was for me like the realization of the book itself, mm-hmm. that, that it would be what I would, would be doing. Mm-hmm. And then at several points, I thought I was finished with it, and then I didn't feel like I was finished with it. And I spent a lot of time orchestrating a, a book, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably what I spend the most time on. How many books have you written? I don't know. That's <laughs> a good answer. You we should, should know. That. We should know that. But it's good that the author does not know how many books they've produced. Oh, I'm glad you think that's. Yeah. Good. No, that's great. Um, I'm always really skeptical of people who have like a handle on every single piece of like minutia or ephemera they've produced over the years because those people are usually Capricorns. It's funny like I always think about how Tony Robbins is always like counting everything that he's done. Like uh-huh. he's like says how many countries he <laughs> has worked in and how many like hundreds of thousands or millions of people he has like fed or helped. His lives like, he's touched. Yeah. The lives he's touched. Yeah. He's keeping How many child. women he's fondled. Yeah. He got me too right? Tony oh, Robbins? Did yeah. He? I he think did. so yeah. He's got big hands and big teeth and like big ears and big everything <laughs> like one tony robbins hand could probably hold a lot of breasts yeah like at, once. at once yeah well he's a pisces oh wow of course born on uh leap day though so Ooh, very mm. very tricky, special tricky. <laughs> i didn't know he'd been tutored. i haven't been following mm-hmm. I forget. I wasn't. I didn't really pay attention to the allegations. Yeah, that's they also, seemed plausible. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, sure, why not? Yeah. So, I guess we can jump into the book. Do you have anything in particular that you want to talk about with, as far as the book when, is concerned? Wait. When did you write to the reader? To the reader was actually one of the last poems that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were sort of reflecting. It's there are some poems that I think about for years Mm -hmm. and I like 
I don't know, there's something, like, there's things that just fall out of you, and there's things that you have an intention for, but you can't force it. Right. And I find that, unfortunately, for me, like, something that is very productive is to build up desire and anxiety yeah. around these intentions. And mm-hmm. so, basically, it just sits in me and ripens until I can't like live with myself and then it keeps on going beyond me not being able to live with myself and then like so that poem is one that came out of uh like a like a fermentation process yeah. like mm-hmm. that that sounds exciting but they're not like they're not all like that but sometimes you know you have to write something like i don't know maybe fiction writers plan more um, i don't know that's a good question i've never been able to like get a grip on the writing process and i think what you're it, right mm-hmm. at some point you I, it's compulsive but it's also like completely out of your control when it spills out of you and i think a lot of writers have said that they have to get to the point where they are so overwhelmed and paralyzed by anxiety and they cannot live with themselves anymore if they don't put the words down <laughs> it's true Wow. And do you do you write everything out physically? Because in in a sandbook, there you mention like your notebook a lot, and like losing your notebook mm-hmm. and staining your notebook and whatever. Do you write by hand? I do. I write by hand. Um, I also write a lot on my phone. Yeah, I really like both. Right. Yeah, I don't love writing on my computer, but I but there but sometimes it happens. But it's like too it's like too smooth. Mm interesting yeah i i would say i'm probably the same like the i think i would also like to think that when you look when you go through the book you can sort of speculate which poems were written by hand and which ones were written on the phone yeah how so i think so what's your instinct there i well at the risk of like being vulgar and uncouth what about um kind of toward the end you had the section that was called fucking ziggurats is that that's phone poetry or hand poetry? Oh, yeah, that's both. Okay. But it's it's very phone style yeah. poetry. Yeah. But it's like it's so phone it's so like I wrote I wrote those poems by hand, but I knew that I was writing phone. Right. Okay. Oh, cool. Poet, you know, yeah. because like so many people fall in love over their phone. You know what I mean, and that's I was true. that was we know a all about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I need to like tell anybody what that's like, and like that was a period of that. Do you do you have that thing that you do where you're like constantly under a low grade state of peril because you're like walking down the street and veering in and out of traffic, like looking at your phone and taking down notes? Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the impression I got from like the mosaic piece that you were like on the street in like the mix. It was not far from here, actually. I know. Oh, it was on Delancey and Essex, right? That's right around Alan, the corner. Oh, Alan, uh, like okay. Alan and Delancey. Like like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I can totally relate to that because that's that's literally an area and intersection where I've had so many like formative, uh, <laughs> long distance romantic phone moments and like almost got hit by like a car or a truck or something. Maybe it's a vortex. Yeah, it is. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of New York where you can just disappear. Yeah. What a way to to die. A quote from, this is like a very embarrassing uh, 
thing to admit, but I read an interview that you did in Sense. Is that how you pronounce it? It's like it's the essence. Essence. I learned that recently. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was a long S sound. Yeah, I thought it was like <laughs> snake sense. It's um, essence. Someone told me very rudely and dismissively. Of, that's sort of weird. Essence is already a really good magazine. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's like a, that's like a that's like rude. It is actually rude. Yeah, it is. Subvert the spelling. Whatever. It's a cultural appropriation. I can't. I can't, I can't vouch for them. But for anyway. yeah, but there was an interview where you um, said that um, where you talk about how um, like the trick of experience that's found in every religious tradition is is seeing kind of every single thing that happens to you as like a gift or a jewel or a treasure that falls in your hand, even if it in the moment it seems traumatic and destructive. And that's kind of an underlying, I wouldn't say a theme because it's not exactly like coherent or thematic, but that I picked up in this book. Yeah, for sure. A sense of like provenance. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. And Mm -hmm. you also talk in the same interview about um, destruction being axiomatic. Well, that's something that is in the mosaic right, uh, yeah. sequence. Right. It, the the sun said that the planet always sustains the maximum destruction possible right, yeah. in a given time. Yeah. I, I can actually pull up that quote. It's good. If you don't mind. I, can I don't mind. I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like it's uncouth to make um, the author quote themselves. Right. I threw it up in my stories last night, so <laughs> I can read it. Um if I can find it let's see here um okay damn it I keep like going back okay here's the quote the world always sustains the maximum suffering it can bear according to the nature of its age there will always be the maximum possible destruction in a given time mm-hmm. and that kind of seems to fly in the face of most like orthodox conventional political or like arguments that you hear in the news or in academia which is that we have to work our hardest to relieve and alleviate suffering which that to me is very kind of in line with like the whole like liberal myth of progress i guess Mm -hmm. would you say that you were like actively counteracting that idea well okay so i have to say two things one is i didn't say that that's although i'm taking responsibility for it like and who said it well it came through that sun right. beam, right? I mean, sorry, listeners. We haven't really given you much context for this, but like people in podcast land maybe need some context. But for me, like that's one of the most fascinating parts of that section. Like I'm really interested in that statement and I like have thought about it a lot and I it's something that I'm really interested in like talking with different kinds of people about Mm -hmm. because like yes you know I think one of the things that's like deleterious about about liberal ideas of progress as we have them in this like very Mm judeo-christian culture is the idea that suffering can be eradicated Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like a it's like a distortion of what like Judaism and Christianity actually teach about the, mm-hmm. the um, function and purpose of suffering, of suffering right. even like possibly like an economy of suffering. Of course, like Buddhism has a different approach to the, to the idea of mm-hmm. suffering. And they just say that like life is suffering. What I found really interesting about this statement 
uh, that kind of changed the shape of my mind right is that there's a that that it's a direct it's like an exact proportion that at any point on the planet the planet is sustaining the maximum suffering possible Mm -hmm. and so what that leads me to or the direction that I went with it is to think structurally about about suffering If, if it's impossible to really quantify it in like some like whether it's like the pain Olympics or just right. like the or the Which sense kind of is like worse. right or the sense of like overwhelming despair that people feel right now mm-hmm. because so many things seem so wildly ir- ir- irredeemable. Mm-hmm. Like to me, it becomes really interesting if if you think about like this is an this is an ecosystem that will sustain that is always sustaining the maximum suffering mm-hmm. possible. So then if you could just like structurally lessen that quotient somehow it becomes like an interesting conversation. Like I just started thinking of it in terms of like, like urban planning and uh-huh. like infrastructure. Right. That's where I went with diminishing suffering through, well, well through just thinking structurally about it. Like, if, yeah. the, if this planet, the, we we know that there's always suffering on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. But but we have all of this kind of like garbage thinking about first of all what good suffering might do, mm-hmm. or like or or how it all is part of this larger ecosystem of experience that yeah. all different kinds of life forms come to have here, and like we don't because you can't quantify suffering, it becomes this like trigger of. Mm-hmm. And like a lever for like anxiety and like different kinds of like freak out behavior. And like, yeah, but if we could think about it, if we could just understand it as an element at play, then maybe we could be cooler about like what we well, it could un- unlock some sort of like creative or productive capacities. Some kind of like yeah. architecture of right. suffering. And I think exactly. the problem at the risk of sounding too concrete, like the problem, the pitfall with sort of like the time that we live in, which I will call for lack of a better word, neoliberal, is that it applies like a very metrics based quantitative mm. criteria to suffering. So everybody is basically trying to out quantify each other in the nature and the magnitude of their suffering. And like you see this kind of with like woke culture, call out culture, whatever. And I, I felt that you were kind of also responding to that in the book a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, could we talk about this poem that I really like that's like kind of right at the front of the book? It's called A Partial History. Um, and I felt I thought that that was like a good summation as any I've read of our current moment. And I'm talking about like very kind of like con- concrete like media or academic theorizations of like whatever, for lack of a better word, again, cancel culture. Um, should I quote some of the poem? Is yeah. that annoying? No, I think that seems appropriate. It's kind of you're long. the first poet we've had. Yeah, on, you really are <laughs> on our it's show. Honor. So, um, so here's a passage from the poem. I hope I don't bungle it. I know it was irrational for whom I saw myself responsible and to whom I wished to remain hospitable. We had all been pursuing our own disintegration for so long by then that by the time the other side began to raise a more coherent complaint against against us, we devolved with such ease and swiftness it seemed to alarm even our enemies. By then, many of us had succumbed to quivering idiocy while others drew vitality from new careers as public scolds. 
behind these middle management professors were at pains to display their faultless views, lest they too find censure, infamy, unemployment, and death at the hands of an enraged public. Individuals in such pain and torment and such confusion, hardly anyone dared ask more of them than that they not shoot. And in fact, many of us willed them to shoot, and some of us were the shooters, and shoot we did. And got us square in the heart and in the face, which anyway we had been preparing these long years for bullets and explosions and whatever else. A vast unpaid army of self-destructors, false comrades, impotent <laughs> brainiacs who wished to appear to be kind. Everything we did for our government and the corporations that served it, we did for free in exchange for the privilege of watching one another break down. Sometimes we were the ones doing the breaking. We would comfort one another afterwards, congratulating each other on the fortitude it took to display such vulnerability. And that was sort of like on the phenomenon of like oversharing. Hmm. Could you maybe talk <laughs> more about that? I know it's a lot to like. Well, yeah, I, you know, there, there's been a lot of ostentatious posturing mm -hmm. um, on the part of people who wish to appear to be woke and then there's people who are actually doing really important mm -hmm. valuable work and there, there's a there's just an immense narcissism on the left that we so desperately <laughs> want above all to be seen as nice people mm -hmm. right and we need above all to feel that we are nice and good people and that is so that is like an immensely like n nauseating <laughs> thing. And, right. um, and it's it sort of, and like, of course, like I nice can, people as opposed to like powerful or effective people. Right. It, yeah. So, and so uh, as a result, you know, it's result, it, it's resulted in, in art, in a kind of fetishization of, of our pain and suffering. Right. Mm -hmm. But in a way, in a way that, um, it, it, and it, it's like slightly off the mark because it, it's, it's complicated. It's, it's important that our art come from a true place and that it make it possible for certain kinds of calamity and catastrophe and suffering to be to be pieced through and felt and understood and partaken of by others. Right. That's for, one of the things mm -hmm. that art does. And so I'm not, so I, it's not like I think that like, there shouldn't be art about uh, our pain and, and suffering, mm -hmm. but but bec but in this sort of narcissistic desire to gratify our own egoic wish to appear like better activists or better mm -hmm. people than we in fact are, right. there's been a bit of like a feedback loop, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, sure. I which, don't know. I, I mean, I, I feel like I've just committed a really grave imposture, which is to try to explain or amplify a, a poem when <laughs> it's you know I can only do it a disservice and like what I just said I'm trying to I'm trying to approximate what you were trying yeah like a succinct s statement about that but the poem does that better and, and right and and so I sort of feel like whatever I just said I can also hear a beveling of like 12 other angles on it that it it's mm -hmm. difficult to speak accurately about it is, this yeah. phenomenon because because you fall into opining or you fall into aesthetics or yeah. you fall or pontificating in, or you Pete fall into tree, pontificating whatever, yeah. or you're or, or you start it's like well we all want to appear 
like better people than we are. It's sort of part of being human. Right. But, but because there are certain tendencies toward like, because Mm -hmm. on the left, there's more tendencies toward self um, deconstruction. It's sort of what I, what I meant. And here again, it's like a grave imposture Mm -hmm. for me to be like what I meant. Mm -hmm. So like, don't listen to anything I'm about to say, (laughs) but like we have pretended that we weren't interested in power. Yes. And so we have ceased to think sanely or in an adult way Mm -hmm. about what power is and how it can be judiciously employed, whether in our personal lives or, or, you know, in the workplace or in the like larger political arena. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so we haven't thought about it Mm -hmm. and we, and so we're totally like on our backs. Like, and when I say we, like I'm being maybe too generous, like maybe I'm not in this we or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you know, like, I'm like, it's like a we in scare quotes that is the left or that is the, like the world of like culturally, like, I don't know, ideological we we or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's what has made, that's, you know, it's, it's just this, it's just too, it's just too much narcissism. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you and really hit on a interesting point because ironically, um, the, le- the kind of broad left is so allergic or afraid of power that they exercise, that they end up exercising power in these very kind of manipulative, passive aggressive ways. So mm-hmm. they, in, in the end, kind of the net effect is the same except for the fact that the power is exerted on other individuals within the left's ranks and with no like productive goal in sight. And that, yeah, I mean, I would say even like a, it, it has a destructive quality on art making because the impulse to virtue signal as an artist and like to signify this kind of niceness, all that really does is like impede meaningful catharsis, mm-hmm. which are, you know, in things like poetry and theater or like arguably or film, whatever are the point of like experiencing a work of art. And of course it actually also impedes like the, the real deracination of like the culturally embedded and personally and socially embedded mm-hmm. like racism and sexism and, and like all the shit that we would actually proclaim to distance ourselves from mm-hmm. like y- you can't. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't know. I just like have an allergy to, I don't know why I'm going in this direction, mm. but like I, I was like, this is back when I used to run and I was like running in Berkeley, California. Mm-hmm. And this like woman, like, almost like ran me over with her car and she like was like all she was like driving into me and I like I like actually had to like slam my hands on the like front of her car and Uh be like and I I had to be like like use your eyes like like you're driving like and she gave me this look that was like she was so mad at me for making her feel bad about herself right and she was like her. the liberal white lady of Berkeley, California. And it's just like that thing of like you, I am mad at you for making me feel bad about myself. Right. <laughs> like, that's like the left. Well, yeah, for like threatening my moral alibi. And you say that we could not face how abstract it was all becoming because it was also the opposite of abstract. 
Um, and so in the final passage of the poem, you say the images gave us no rest yet failed over and over despite the immensity of their realism to describe the world as we really knew it and worse as it knew us. And I thought that was like a particularly profound passage because you so kind of expertly identify the failure of realism to adequately or faithfully convey meaning, both the meaning of the world and the meaning of ourselves. And I, I've noticed that in art across the board, there is this emphasis on like hyper realism or even hysterical realism. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking especially of like the critiques of that Sally Rooney book, Conversations, which I actually haven't read, but I've read the critiques. Um, and a lot of the best critics of that book, from what I understand, say that it's so faithful to like the minutia and colloquialism of everyday life that it actually fails to reproduce anything in a believable or plausible way. And now you see kind of like a triumph of the unimaginative or the overexplained. And this is like a long winded mm -hmm. way of getting to the point. But I think the kind of amazing, irresistible thing for me about that poem was how it without being concrete it really described more ac accurately and efficaciously the situation that we're facing and now we've made you explain it yeah <laughs> sorry what did you just say i said that i was just remarking on the we were talking about how things are over explained and then how the poem had a succinct quality but then we made you explain yeah it. yeah <laughs> I have that I have this like just like this feeling at the like in my mm -hmm. spine of like the feeling that I get when I'm like right now yeah I've just like I don't know if what I said about the poem is correct that's okay but that's it's good important. right yeah. that's important for me to say that yeah yeah well, I mean I think that's like kind of the point that we're making that that now there's also almost this emphasis or like idea that artists should be kind of responsible for explaining their work which seems false because it does the work and the artists like a disservice on some level yeah or that artists should be pundits mm -hmm. or whatever yeah yeah have you noticed that more and more like as like a working poet who like routinely travels to to you know give readings and talks and that sort of thing i think what poetry is a space for me and i've become really interested in like enlarging that space and like playing with what it can do mm -hmm. for my life like to give me more space to like breathe or like have relationships mm -hmm. in the way that I that I want to mm -hmm. and so it's true that I sometimes have the impression that some that that with some artists or some people that what they are seeking is a platform um, so and um, and a kind of punditry mm -hmm. and so and it and what leads them to that space can be all kinds of different things mm -hmm. for, leads them to wanting that um, and that's okay and some of them are very good at being pundits but right. I, I'm really interested in a I'm just attracted to an environment that poetry seems to produce and that I, I'm able to produce for myself by writing it but also reading it and like just a, a way of being with the human voice and a feeling like the truth that I'm so famished for right. so starved right. for and so when I'm traveling around I'm not like stumping for a particular issue but it's interesting to me that like I guess as like my career has like accreted some like sediment 
or something that I like that that people seem to believe that I am in favor of certain things and against right. other things and like kind of and, that's, and that's okay with me like but it's not but it's not a list of things and I I've sort of taken this soft approach to like not defining myself like I also don't define like my sexual orientation or mm-hmm. whatever and those are those were strategies to protect the space that I need in order to transact with the truth in a, in the best right. way that I know how and that doesn't mean that I am good at it it's just something that I couldn't figure out any other way to do mm-hmm. so I, that's why I love poetry because it it's an unusual frequency well, and yet it's, it's like very and yet it's like basically nothing so it's sacred in a time when few things are and sacredness also is a kind of nothingness or like an arbitrariness. Well, the kind of magic of the way that it's sacred is it's 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 nothing and less than nothing. So the minute because as soon as we start like mm-hmm. holding it too preciously, it, mm-hmm. it dies. Right, and it's sort of I don't know if this is like radically inefficient. Totally, like yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> which is well so, which is what's so great about it, and it's I mean like it. it what I like about poetry <laughs> is, yes, that it, sure. <laughs> is that it is like just a purest expression of a creative state of being that is sort of like a conduit to something extraordinary or true or like. And the funny thing about it is that like you only get into that space by being so real with your own shittiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yet that alone won't get you in either. It's like, that's just the beginning. Right. So you have to be like, you have to be self-aware about what an awful narcissist you are. But then what happens? I don't know. I don't know. Like Kenneth Koch says that the poet, the poet is a genius who receives inspiration. And I think like you do on a certain level have to believe that that is like you are like a vessel a brilliant vessel through which like the muses channel their inspiration. And it's like, but you have to, but you can't be too precious about it either. You have to, you do have to exist in this kind of like liminal space. I'm glad Kenneth Koch said that. Yeah, me too. I, when I, I was like, wow, cool. Um, you, you have yeah, to very, hurt very others contrary to be extraordinary. Yeah. Cause he was also a great, um, he was like a really, really gifted teacher of like children I and stuff like that. Wishes and dreams. Yeah, yeah, wishes, lies, and dreams. Mm-hmm. It's so good. And like, and like, what that book proved is like basically every child is like a better poet than like anyone you've ever met. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like a, that's an argument I've heard like many times. Every child is arguably a better artist than any kind of fully fleshed, mm-hmm. self conscious adult on some level. Which is funny that so much of the critique of like contemporary art is like hey my kid could do that (laughs) can i ask kind of like a personal question sure so in the book there's a lot of mentions of people who are like maybe friends or lovers that come in and out of your life how do those people respond when they like see their mention in a book it's a it's a spectrum of responses. The like some of the people that are in a sand book are super psyched about it and like still psyched about it. Okay. Mm. Some of the people were fully pumped about it at the time of the writing of those poems, <laughs> but like less excited about it now. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> 
like making reference to anyone on our podcast maybe yeah right i'm sure yeah yeah when did you start considering yourself a poet were you a child i didn't start considering myself a poet until fairly recently yeah because it's something like you said where you have to accumulate yeah and you also have to be like holy fuck like this is what has happened (laughs) which is you know like i think it's very improbable it's a very improbable profession i mean there's people who like self-identify as a they're like i am a poet through and through and like they're like ceos of major businesses (laughs) they 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 fundamentally identify as a poet Uh I, i respect that i did not have that courage or self-love or whatever and it's it's something that it, it accumulated i remember like meeting patty smith and i was introduced as a poet and i like grimaced mm. and i was like i'm really embarrassed that i'm making this face because it's cool to meet you and she's like <laughs> i've been making that face my whole life <laughs> when people call her a poet oh right. yeah it's like an occupational hazard when you're like standing by as the third party to an exchange where you're introduced as like x or y and it's always like very cringeworthy I in- but i don't cringe i anymore. introduced myself to john baldessari as a poet you did mm-hmm. and he said oh that's great he was like <laughs> i never you never hear that anymore and he was like you know my work sells for hundreds and thousands of dollars and he was like have you ever heard of a poem selling for that much? <laughs> I said, no i haven't what a charming in his <laughs> in his rodarte in his rodarte hockey jersey god um <laughs> but I, in retrospect yeah i'm very mortified that i no like, you did the right thing <laughs> he he uh, he was he he could have responded with a little bit more um, he seemed aplomb <laughs> i mean i think um i think more and more people will be introducing themselves as poets i think it's the art form for mm. um the apocalypse <laughs> sure and um and i think the beautiful thing is that everyone can do it and nobody mm-hmm. has to be good at it right yeah it well it really is like i'm sorry if i sound corny right now i feel like even though uh, poetry as such like all kind of major artistic media it feels like maybe a little bit retrograde or almost obsolete now it really is like the medium for our moment because everything is like poetry and now you see like all these kind of like new media people who are basically assembling poetry or you can be like scrolling the feed on Twitter or on Instagram and things are like poetry to you. Yeah. Well, that's why it becomes interesting to study it a little bit because I mean, you know, the president is a tweeter. I mean, he's a poet. Yeah. I always say he's the most important poet (laughs) and, um, and it's true. And like, it doesn't, it's, I think if we, you know, it's, it's just, it's funny. Like we, language is an embarrassment. Like we're not good at it. Mm-hmm. No. And, um, and it's also like, it's like the whole thing. It's like the gift that we got. Like, it's like why we're not animals. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very big deal that we have language and like we are not comfortable with it. And like, it's weird and we're not, we like haven't figured it out. I was going to ask before but it seemed like a digression a little bit but I'll ask now because you mentioned like us being separate from animals do you think that suffering is like a uniquely human symptom of consciousness or something I think that Rilke thought that I think I forget which poem it is in the Duino elegies but there's one about the beast 
And of, and of course, there's lots of traditions that say that. I don't think so. I think... You think animals suffer in a meaningful way as well? Yeah, That I they do. are part of the economy of, of suffering, suffering we were talking yeah. about. Well, I, I think it's really interesting. But yeah, and, yeah. and there's all these different kinds of suffering sure and i don't know it's peculiar it's peculiar like it's like a very sometimes i think it's just like when i'm just sort of like lazily like free associating about it i just wonder if it's just the fact that the planet is round and there's a curve to things and wait the planet mm. is round i, I mean that. it's like a round planet right yeah. it's like a globe and right. like and like and so phenomena have their, this curve there's well, like that's um on the nature of all things Oh, it is? That Lucretius poem, it's like an ancient Greek poem about atoms falling in the void and sort of everything being made up out of like materials, but because, and he describes it as a curve as well, because there's like a curve that accounts for like chance and randomness and like yeah. things not being predetermined. There you go, Lucretius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to that point, you, you describe us, like us, I don't know what that us necessarily entails, but humans, I'm assuming as quote, ancient creatures built for love and war. And mm. so I guess you're implying that these kind of destructive, chaotic impulses have always existed within human nature. And um, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but do you feel like they are being intensified now or the opposite? Like I'm thinking like with like social media. It's weird. Like it's both intensifying and it's also kind of like a total boner killer. Like me too is mm -hmm. a massive boner. <laughs> I know. Tell me about it. And, Amen. Um, but I, but I don't, but I mean that in every, like, I don't mean like because a bunch of angry feminists ruin sex. That's right. not what I'm saying. I mean, because it, it like, it was, it was like horrifying and overwhelming and true and, and also like censorious and yeah. awful. And it, it was just like, it, like in every direction it was. And, and, um, but also just like for lots of people just like living in a, like, like a convulsive, like pornographic hellhole, like <laughs> of constant, like death sex. Like that is also a boner details. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's why these lovely young people that we were talking about before, like all want to be like priests and mm -hmm. yeah, because, because it's horrifying and it also kills the, it kills the beautiful impulse to connect and to like be, Right. To like arise mm -hmm. into experience and discovery. That well, is what well, life yeah, is supposed to feel A lot of people like. think that they want sex, but what they really want is some sort of like a communion with yeah. something higher. I think we want all kinds of communion. Different things. Yeah, but Dasha, you said this mm -hmm. like a couple of times, like very early on in the podcast, that when mm -hmm. Me Too first started gaining steam with Harvey Weinstein, you were just like obsessively reading through all the stuff and just like completely like overwhelmed and fatigued and like, yeah well like, I didn't get out of bed for yeah because I was trying to be an actress in Los Angeles and all of it was so familiar and then it also illuminated how much I had like just sex just was just something that I could leverage in this totally like pornographic hellscape right but like with me too you can totally you can see the inadequacy of words of language to approximate suffering mm -hmm. it's litigating like sexuality that is truly traumatic or something well the law wasn't i mean 
as as the federal mediator said when mm-hmm. I was in her office because I was suing a university, she kept, she kept being like, well, who do you think wrote the law? And she was like trying to get me to like not pursue my case. But mm-hmm. I was like, that's my point. Like, that's why I'm right. in this room with you. But it's like, yeah, so we, we don't have an apparatus that makes it possible to... I don't, I don't, I actually, I don't think that the law as it now exists, I, I'm obviously like not a legal scholar mm-hmm. or a lawyer, but like it, it seems like it can be used judi- judiciously, like the way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has, has used it and the uh-huh. way that the Title IX litigators who sort of made that into a thing that right. wasn't just for sports teams, you know, it, it, it can be applied in a savvy way in in order to pr- protect people mm-hmm. but it um there the whole i guess the the emotional mess and also just like the tactical sloppiness of a lot of different corners of the thing has made the phenomenon just way it goes way beyond what the law could ever well yeah i touch. mean even when you say the law like there is no law there's like a collection of different laws and statutes that again are completely not capable of dealing with the problem like there's no way to like standardize i don't think a response to like sexual misconduct or assault because you have to treat every case on a case-by-case basis I think it was Eleanor of Aquitaine who was mm. said to have presided over a court of love in uh, whenever she was uh, reigning. Uh-huh. And I think her dad was a true, if I remember correctly, her father was like a troubadour poet, like a okay. famous oh, troubadour wow. poet. And she, and like people would come, like I'm just like totally talking out of my ass now. Like I'm not exactly sure what kind of, disputes were heard in the court of love but like she so she was a poet herself her father was this great troubadour of course all the troubadour poetry was about like adulterous amor- like entanglements mm-hmm. and and the pain and suffering of that and, and those poems also if I remember correctly all, were often like very military in their um, imagery so mm-hmm. that like the woman was like the citadel who like had to be conquered and like right. penetrated. And like, so it's not like it was like perfect or whatever, like back then, but it's just interesting to think of like, well, if there could be a court of love, what would it look like? Or, and like who would preside? Um, it's actually an opera that I'm working on <laughs> right now. That's a, that, that's um, a great idea. That sounds great. It reminds yeah. me of like Marianne Williamson's ministry of peace. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you what you think about Marianne Williamson? I promise we won't get into any other annoying political um, discussions. I I think she's really neat, um, <laughs> and I and I think it's it's just great that somebody like that was in the mix of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I think I haven't like delved deeply into her work the way that some people have. Like I have a couple of friends who are like they're like. like people who are like in recovery yeah and like used to be like very cynical and like whatever and like cynical drug addict intellectuals who like have (laughs) have opened their hearts and souls as a process of their recovery and they like watch her thing every Sunday and like (laughs) you know I I think that she's uh, astonishing and wonderful and uh dignified and freaky well said yeah Yeah, she is freaky and i think that she will we will like her impact will be felt it is it is being felt it will continue to be felt and Mm -hmm. it's certainly like 
I think it's a good sign. It's a good sign. And it'll just be really interesting, like to see as like women learn how to like give each other space and like be freaky and wonderful and astonishing Mm -hmm. with and for one another. I think it it would make for like a, 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 a wonderful conversation. We don't know what will happen. Right. But I would love, I would love to see it. Yeah. 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 Um, I like also, you know, somebody asked me a, like a kind of a great question at this reading last night about like religion and spirituality and like he phrased it. He, he, it was like a very well phrased question that I can't reconstitute, uh-huh. but it was sort of like a lot of the, a lot of the like old religions are, are based on revealed truth. They're, they're based on the, they, they have it as their foundations, these, hmm. these experiences that are like that then people, people just acknowledge them as true. Right. And then, and then like weird apparatus grows up around that to try to like maintain it. And like that becomes like cultures and mm-hmm. like, sure. you know, and then the, and like, then there's the weird rules about like what you are and aren't allowed to do. And all these like holidays that are supposed to like help you remember all that stuff. But like, but what's interesting I think is like, and I, and was one of the reasons why I like recovery as a religion is because like, I think that the real basis for religion is experience. Mm. And it's really beautiful when people are, are like trying to live like in some kind of like rigorous fidelity to their experience. Mm. And there are, when you've had an experience of love or an experience of healing, it's very powerful because everything says that you shouldn't have that. Right. And so when people are courageous enough to show their fidelity to that it's very beautiful and liberating yeah yeah i thought that was a beautiful moment and um there's a poem that you had called emergency room where you were describing this guy who was like flailing and acting out against the nurses and how all these women kind of banded around him and you said that it was like in you talk about how much you love human spaces like hospitals Mm -hmm. and subways and airports and whatever and you were talking about kind of how human care is a divine mystery which like really stuck out at me. I think like with the the kind of problem with religion is that a lot of these things that are accidental or arbitrary experiences become like calcified and canonical. And then you really have to like put in the effort of scaling back. And you said this in the intro to Mosaic, how when you had this kind of like divine episode or divine prophecy, I guess if you could call that, um, how um, you felt lovingly taunted and mildly made fun of which was beautiful because i think we all have that moment where we are brought back to a point of like humility Mm -hmm. and everything now has like you you can like see yourself kind of as like an omniscient observer becoming like talking about politics or theory or all these things that are on some level meaningless like in the realm of like interpersonal relations and then you have like a moment of reckoning like that where you're like holy shit like i'm just well it's funny that sand is such a is like the kind of organizing metaphor of this book because i I remember my father always used to say like you know you're just a a grain of sand in the world Mm. well like blake to see the universe in the grain of sand right yeah that's probably where he got it from So, but yeah, so you're also... Anna's dad actually made that up. Yeah. (laughs) Well, also the experience of healing and like recovery also touch on this theme of like everything that happens to you is a kind of 
providence or kind of gift because it gives you like a higher capacity for like empathy or human care mm-hmm. things things of that nature well that's a good one i i always i found that like in my like idiot beginnerhood of like trying to figure out like how to like live with myself yeah. which is like all we're all anybody's trying to do i guess like um that is such a good teacher because and there's there's these there's beautiful poems in all these different traditions about how much we're being given and how we can't even handle it. Mm-hmm. And like in some, like one way to think about the whole problem of like whatever's going on on the planet is we've been given so much and we like can't even deal with the, fa- like, like the fact that we get to breathe and like the fact mm-hmm. that we get to eat, like eating and breathing. Those are like, very privileged things like and in in traditions where like spirits mount you or where whatever like whatever there's like all these different um frameworks that talk about why all the stuff that we get to do is so great yeah and so like even just beginning by thinking about everything that one has been given is like it's it, it completely upends the entire education that this culture has like imprinted right in us which is that we have we have to buy everything and that yeah. we're pieces which of is shit. that there's a kind yeah. of scarcity yeah yeah and like the resources are limited yeah well and kind of the the underlying ethos of liberal progress that we have to produce more goods and services to fulfill all these needs and desires that we don't even know we had that are in some ways like deeply corrosive well, yeah, that's just Satan. Yeah, because you just like don't need so many that's options. Truly yeah. satanic. But like, I arguably that's like the function of poetry, of like reading poetry. I don't know about writing it, but what, what is like bringing you back to like a point of humility where you're like an omniscient observer of your own human condition, as stupid as that sounds. I don't know. I like that sounds plausible, mm. and like I think that it's also like it's a practice and it goes badly a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And I like, I'm, I think part of what's interesting about poetry is that it's, it's a, it's a practice. It's like something that you do like praying. (laughs) Yeah. And you, and like it, it doesn't always feel amazing in the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's not always succeeding. Right. And like, and it may be that like the moments that it does succeed in those moments, you are a genius being possessed by the muse, <laughs> like Kenneth Koch said and like right. others have said. And like, um, but there's like a, I don't know. I mean, there's like techniques for this stuff. And like, mm-hmm. it's something that it's like it, it as badly as it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's a useful thing. It's, I don't know. It's like a useful thing to do to write or read poetry or hear yeah, I would, uh, I would say to write and read right. poetry. Yeah. It's like, it, it, it's like it costs very little. It takes very little time. Like, yeah. Anyone and anyone can do it. Yeah. Do you like encourage everyone to do it? I do. Okay. I do. It's my only evangelism. You're like proselytizing. <laughs> You're like the prophet Muhammad. You receive a div- like a divination. And like- I think it's a helpful thing. It's a helpful thing to try because because we have language. Yeah, and it's like a well. I think people are even if they aren't don't realize it because of things like the internet, which has like proliferated our whole relationship to language. Right, and 
but but like enough has like enough has accumulated that like you don't have to be like a neuroscientist or like a super genius yeah. to see like how we are how we are all like programming programming ourselves and being programmed mm-hmm. by these like like certain um w- kinds of speech mm-hmm. or whatever it's like it's like that that's like obvious yeah and but like what where it becomes a creative act i think is like it's like you can take your experience like a fish or whatever like if you're fishing you can like get something on the hook and you can be like no like you can reject it and like throw it back and ask for something else right and poetry is like a useful space to practice that with your experience like on a on like the lowest level like if you're just gonna be like "Mm, no thank you you know Mm. or or like you're looking at a piece of experience that maybe you want to keep or you have to like turn it around a little bit and think about it. Yeah. Like it's so humble. It's not a piece of fiction. It's not a fucking essay. Yeah. It's it's just like a little bit of almost nothing <laughs> that but it gives you enough space to to take a little bit of agency with your own consciousness. Right. Well, like on a practical level, this is like kind of a naive question, but do you ever like melt down and just like scrap your work oh i mean most of what i write is not is a refuse is re- yeah okay. it's just a um, metabolic <laughs> residue that's a good way of putting how do you it? know when a poem is good sometimes you know right away <laughs> and you, you feel really good yeah. yeah and sometimes you find it uh later yeah what's the longest that you've worked on one that's a good question the poem oh well it it really depends most of my things come out pretty close to ready Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of editing um there is there is editing it you know it like sometimes it's like almost a hundred percent on and sometimes there's a lot of fussing Mm. Um, the poem in a stand book that I probably wrestled with the most and in the most torturous way and that I, and that is in the book, even though it's a failure is the poem Sandra, mm-hmm. um, which I wrote, I, I, it was after Sandra Bland's murder. I wrote a poem mm. in to my Tumblr, like mm-hmm. just back when in that summer Mm -hmm. um and it was way too long and it's not a good poem and it but i like i used to do that i would write stuff into tumblr Mm -hmm. and um people uh, people wrote to me about it and like were like into it for whatever reason and um i don't i struggled with that poem a lot because and i kept taking it out and putting it back in and taking out and putting it back in and it was like um it was like this thing of like you're a white lady like are you allowed to mourn that like are you allowed to mourn this murder Mm. uh do you know how to mourn this murder do you know how do you have the right to talk about it at all and I, my like basic feeling was like, maybe not, like probably not. Like I can't, mourning is very difficult. Like, and I, f- I feel like I really suffered over that poem mm. because I, I, I finally, like I put it in because I was like, I think it's racist and evil that I <laughs> would 
like out of fear that somebody might say that I was doing it wrong, decide yeah. that it, I would do the safe thing and not Publish mourn it, this. Yeah. The whole book is a book of mourning. And right. like there's a lot of different kinds of sand in it. And like I felt I felt like I didn't do her justice. I didn't do the whole catastrophe of race in this country justice, but mm -hmm. I had to have it somehow live in the book and I suffered over it a lot and I like worked on it mm. too much and I'm not proud of it, but it's there. Well, mm -hmm. In its defense, I think it's a little bit about also the inadequacy of language and, that in, is that, what it's and about. in that it is successful and that it's yeah. maybe not your favorite or most tortured. Well, right. Like the horrific imposture of an eloquent poem about, yeah, exactly. about a horrible, <laughs> it just like uh, injustice. Yeah. 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 That is what that's the poem is about. It's true. Um, but I'm, but I'm still not, I'm not happy with it. I'm, I don't mm -hmm. think I'm supposed to be happy with it. I don't think it excuses me or absolves me of like, I don't know. Right. Yeah, but I mean, it would be bizarre to be happy with yes, all, Yeah. Know? What? It would be bizarre almost to be happy about it. I don't know. You know? The happy poet. Well, not any poem, but like about something yeah, as about grave that. as that to be like, wow, I really nailed it. Yeah. So, so that's the one I've worked on the, the longest and the most. Mm. And, mm -hmm. um, I, and I don't think that overdoing it, like I'm not like Leonard Cohen, like, per, like it takes me 10 years and then it's perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. Usually when I overdo and like over chew that stuff, it doesn't have a good result. Right. right. Sorry, that took a long time. No, no. It's, it, it, it's important. Like instinctively, it's important to let certain documents and records like that stand for those very reasons because they unlock certain kind of like uncomfortable, inconvenient truths, I guess. I think in general, it's good to not be too precious. Yeah. Especially about poetry. Especially yeah. about poetry. It's, yeah. With poetry, it's almost better to be prolific than precious. Yeah. And just kind of like turn it out. <laughs> <laughs> Should we briefly talk about the astrology thing or no? So you are not only a vocational poet, <laughs> you also work as an astrologer. Yes. 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 <laughs> Moving on from poetry to astrology, which is the... The poetry of the stars. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> how did you? Do you want to talk talk briefly about how you got into that? What is your sign? Yeah. What is your sign? What's your sign? I'm a, I'm a Scorpio. Oh. Okay. Mm. Um, could you tell how reluctant I was to say you were a Scorpio? I a Scorpio? Yeah, I was trying to Google this ahead of time because I ask everybody what their sign is, even though it means nothing to me. But. <laughs> But you believe in it. I believe we've in it, had but I also don't. Yeah, we've yeah, <laughs> we've hit a real like we don't believe it, but we but do, we and do. it doesn't matter. Well, there's there's <laughs> like an astrological adage that like you know you don't have to believe in it for it to work, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's kind of like religion, they, like kind of so like AA, actually, like so many things, kind of like AA, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. like anything. Right. Yeah, I just I like to bring it up because like when I'm trying to seduce people at like Baccaro or Clando, I'm like, what's your sign? Like cozying up to people, and that seems to like really disarm people because everybody wants to 
talk about themselves but they don't want to be annoying and be like so i'm working on this project and if you steer <laughs> the conversation toward astrology they and tend it's to a way up. of talking about human types in general yeah that is a good social lubricant without yeah. resorting to like phrenology or eugenics <laughs> <laughs> like looking at people's measuring people's feet yeah, i yeah. travel with calipers so you're i'm like beyonce <laughs> i have calipers in my bag i noticed your skull's longer than it's wide <laughs> you know that's not the white ideal right <laughs> um how did you become an astrologer i guess um as opposed to so i'll try to make this quick um my mom who's paranoid schizophrenic became very involved in and fascinated by astrology in the late 80s around Mm -hmm. the time that you could first get software for Mm -hmm. it and she was in a kind of mania she was in a creative blossoming let's Mm -hmm. instead of mania let's just put a positive spin on Mm -hmm. it and so i remember i remember like she would just spend hours and hours on her word processor and like she'd be printing out charts and like chain smoking carlton menthol 100s like for hours and hours and hours and it was like the first time that i felt neglected as a kid Mm -hmm. and um and then as like different things started to happen to her and the family started falling apart, I just sort of instinctively distanced myself from anything that could remotely smack of, uh, of an irrational femininity right. or femaleness. Right. So not only astrology, but a, like a whole menu of, of interests and things and behaviors. And I am from Salem, Massachusetts. And so like the whole thing was like very overdetermined. Um, and I was in Haiti in 2010 and it was, I, I, I encountered someone who was extremely wise and very, very erudite. And Mm -hmm. when I say wise, I mean like of a penetrating spiritual wisdom, but he was also very erudite. And um, he did my birth chart, um, among other things. Mm -hmm. And I just had the feeling that it was time for me to think, like to figure out how, what astrology was because the way that this man was using it was it was fully integrated in a pract in a practice he had of working with people it wasn't just its own thing like the fetish of astrology it was one tool among many Mm -hmm. that he used in order to address a situation yeah um and i found that like illuminating and I decided that it was time for me to stop being afraid of it. And, um, and so, and I also wanted to kind of stop being afraid of my mom. So it was like really understand her on some level. Yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't like, I'm going to be a professional astrologer or like, but I thought this is something that I should know that you ought to reckon with. Yeah. Mm. And cool. so mm-hmm. like in the, in the, in the barest sense, I don't know anything about this. I'm like a total novice. What is, what does your chart say about you? Not you personally, but what does it re- like reveal about a person? Generally speaking, it's very interesting. Um, I would answer this question probably in different ways on different days. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But the chart can reveal a lot. It can reveal things about, um, 
our physical ailments, mm -hmm. um, uh, areas of talent, certain, mm -hmm. um, it, it can show like our areas of like of interest and professional life. Mm -hmm. Um, it can tell things about mood, like, where you live and like where how much you move or what and, you do for money and the um, idea is that these things are influenced by celestial bodies well the way that i like to think of it is that is it's it's like a it's a chart that shows it's a system of dynamic relating and everything is functioning reciprocally mm -hmm. so um so the planets uh, that are or orbiting the sun and also the like the smaller objects like moons and um, plutoids and mm -hmm. asteroids and all of that, all of everything is in constant motion. And so there, it's an ever evolving system of relation. And so there's there's relationships between the planets there um, uh, and those sort of tone tonal conversations are shifting all the time and evolving all the time. Um, and then there's the way that these things relate to us. So what the birth mm -hmm. chart shows is where the planets were at the moment that we emerge into this plane of being. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because it's, it's like the way that I think of it is it's like, or, or, and sometimes talk about it in session is it's like, it's as though you had, um, you know, two flesh parents, who you know who like brought who gave you the body but then there's this whole um other com like bigger conversation happening it's like yeah. a bunch of fairy godmothers right. or something and and they're all having conversations with each other and other you know other entities and like but it's like but how does it relate to me so it's it's just yeah. in, it's an interesting um like expanded family dynamic is one way to think about it that's cool. And, <laughs> you know, and like some people are arguing and like some people are like, yeah, you know, really in in touch. And um, and so we can sort of see a lot about what will be challenging and like where extra support is going to be needed. Mm -hmm. um, and but sometimes, you know, and in, in but it, th there's also lots of things that the chart doesn't show. Right. Um, yeah, and, I imagine. And, and that it's also sort of the astrologer's interpretation of it. Of course. Yeah. I mean, like significant as well. That's the other thing that's kind of interesting about astrology is it's also a language mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. like any, like we employ English in different ways. Yeah. Like that's the language we're speaking now. And like, I don't speak it the same way that you speak it. And, but like we sort of understand right. each other. Yeah. One hopes. Um, yeah. And so I, I think it's a useful thing to know. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a useful framework to have because, but, but like many things, it's become a fetish of its own and, you know, people are obsessed with yeah, it. Yeah. Like a micro economy or whatever. Yeah. When yeah. you, you don't have to answer this, but when you had your chart done, did you learn something that was especially like illuminating? Yeah, I, well, I try to I try to um, have my chart read. Um, I don't do it as often as I should. Like, mm -hmm. if I were to really be like a good professional, I think I would be doing it like every three months or something because there's so many different approaches yeah. and you can learn so much from the way other practitioners uh, do it. Yeah. But absolutely, every every encounter with that has been. Um, illuminating and interesting I sort of am of the mind that all of these um 
divinatory methods work. Mm-hmm. And it's been my experience that like, whether it's tarot cards or astrology or like palm reading or whatever, like basically all of it has been true. Mm. Um, in, but, but some people are able to sort of, but it's rare for me to encounter someone who can, who has a kind of like majesty <laughs> that they can mm-hmm. speak to me so irrefutably accurately and perfectly mm-hmm. that like my mind is blown. Right. Mm-hmm. But because I've had that experience and I've had like the Dolly Dingle like variety of like whatever, like run of the mill sort of a uh, divinatory occult reading experience. Mm-hmm. Like it, it all basically agrees. It's just that like, I like the times that I, it's been most powerful has it. It's, it's been a, like a very unique and powerful person mm-hmm. who was able to say that like it's like the same thing that Dolly Dingle said, but like in in words that like made me weep. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Am I making any sense? No, to you know, you, you are. Yeah. Um, so I just sort of a, think that all of this stuff works. Like if I just like dumped like some dirt on the floor mm-hmm. and, and like and then like. Read it. Read it. <laughs> Tea leaves, whatever. Yeah, yeah. like I, there would be something in there that would be useful. Sure. Yeah, I mean, even if it is like kind of a post hoc rationalization, I think if you can find something like productive and illuminating, then so be it. I remember this woman who was like a family friend read my fortune, like Armenian or Turkish style with the coffee cup, you know, mm-hmm. where they overturn yeah. it. And it was like a kind of like magical moment. Yeah. That somebody yeah. would have kind of the creative wherewithal to even spin any meaning from like the pattern of rinds on a tablecloth or whatever. Um, I love that. I've had um, somebody read my coffee grounds once too. And I, I I have, I don't know the technique for that. And like, I haven't like Googled it. Um, But like, it was incredible. Like it was, it was not inaccurate. Yeah. And it was also, it's also a wonderful thing to do. It's in, you yeah. know, and like it's enchanting. And enchanting. Yeah, it's enchanting. Yeah. And it's like a connective practice. Yeah, it was lovely in every way. And I was just like, this is great. This is just great. <laughs> like, it's a skill. It's just like a skill to have. It's a skill. It's a social, it's a practice and like a social craft as well. Yeah. Um, sure. When I had my chart done, I found out I had a lot of Lilith in my mid heaven, <laughs> which is how I learned that I was doomed. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. You <laughs> Um, well, some people are like Dark Moon Lilith is bullshit, and we don't work with that. So. Yeah, I, I have no idea what that means. I'm not. <laughs> my worry. astrologer said I wasn't doomed. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, no they can't. I mean, say we're all doomed, doomed one way or another. another. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what that what astrologers used to do is they would predict like when the ki- what day the king would die, and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Right? And consciousness has moved beyond that. Right. That's what I want. A chart that tells me how and when I'm going to die. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> On that note, um, on that note, you have some shows coming up. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> some right. readings. So I'm reading with um, Ali Liebegott, uh at the Poetry Project on Wednesday night. Ali is really great. She's a painter and a poet and a TV writer. Mm. Um, and on Friday night, speaking of astrology mm-hmm. and tarot cards, um, at the Strand, I'm reading with C. A. Conrad, who is incredible poet do you know their no i'm not familiar they're really incredible um and very like hardcore woo woo 
Um, cool. And uh, Rob Brezhny, who is like the OG syndicated astrologer. Wow. Of, I think like I remember it from the 90s. It oh, was wow. like like at the back of like every free weekly in mm-hmm. America was like his astrology. I know that name. Yeah. Yeah. He's like the first like really big famous astrologer like of the like uh, in America like of the American scene I think. Yeah. And um, and his daughter who's a poet Zoe Brezhny. So it's Ro- it's like Rob Brezhny and he's like flying from California for wow. this reading. Wait, wait, I'm so, so it'll be like a woo. Be it. It'll be like a wooish. A cool. And that's at the Strand on Friday. Friday night, Friday the 13th. Oh, so 9-11 wow. is Wednesday. 9-11, a very, <laughs> you. a joyful day. <laughs> Never um, forget. Yeah. Then, so for the night of mourning, I'll be with Allie at the project. And then for Friday the 13th with these um, diviners. And these are like eight, oracles. 8 p.m. normal. They're like 7 or 8 p.m. I'm not sure. Normal event time. Yeah. Nor- yeah. yeah. <laughs> Opening time. Um, yeah. I'm very excited. Can I ask you one more thing? Yeah. What do you think about Susan Miller? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, It's funny. She, I was like told about her and everyone was like, it's so accurate. Like it's like a hundred percent. Like I, um, and I, I have read her horoscopes, you know, I read them like monthly for several years. Yeah. And what I realized was like, gosh, like I don't, this doesn't obtain on my life at all. <laughs> yeah. um, but actually I've had that experience with most horoscopes. They don't actually make sense to me for me. Cause they're all like, you should remodel your house. <laughs> yeah. this month. Well, that's, like the, that's the funny thing about Susan Miller is it's all like have plastic surgery on this. Like, yeah. it's like she has a certain readership that she's like writing Cultivated. for. Yeah. Um, and I'm always like, great, I'll pencil that in. Yeah. Like, I, I've been wanting don't sign any talks. contracts. This yeah, weekend. Okay. Well, I'll try not to. It's like, but it's, it's very aspirational. Like it's it like, is. Yeah. I wouldn't mind scheduling some plastic surgery and signing some contracts. Um, I read her because I think she favors Pisces. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I just don't. Um, it may be because I have a lot of oppositions in my chart. It may be because I'm like contrarian or because I'm deeply unself-aware. But mm. like I, I tend to find horoscopes to be like really lovely to read and like all, also like not accurate to my experience yeah yeah so it's like um, fiction yeah it's like recreational i really read them out of like a desperation <laughs> where i'm like if someone can just say that Send something's gonna song. be okay yeah. or <laughs> i've definitely been there i've where definitely like, read them for that too and then it's nice to have that story but it, it i often just find sure. that it's not the case yeah for me. and uh fair enough <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for coming no, on the thank show. You. Thanks for having me. See, See you in hell. We'll see you in hell.